Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. This is our very first Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show of the 2021s. We're going to do something eh, a little different. Normally, we talk a little bit in the beginning, then we roll into your Q&A, and we say goodbye. And then we do a second episode, which we're going to need to do based on the amount of questions and comments that came in this week. We're going to play with the format a little bit just for this episode because we have some competing things of interest. So last week, where we didn't do a week in IndyCar normal Q&A, I believe we just did the, or was it the week before? I don't even remember, uh, where we did your awards. Uh, well, we still had some come in after the cutoff. So want to do those, so we're going to open the show with that. During the awards show, I think I made one up enough to the point where I said, hey, uh, super producer Tim Durham of the Off Track with Hinch and Rossi podcast, a friendly, friendly show, we're friends with them, or is it mild aggro and true hatred and division where masking is friendship, uh, said, hey, uh, we gave you an award for being the most Hinch and Rossi podcast that's off track, so send in an award speech. Uh, accepting it, which he did, and you're going to hear one of the very few bleeps that we've had on this show before. Thanks, Tim. Going to go ahead and just ruin the youth of tomorrow with your potty mouth. Then we're going to get into the items you've sent in for this week. So, ah, should be a little bit fun. If you've never listened before, well, uh, this is kind of how we do things. It's a bit unpolished. Uh, I refer to it as my unpolished turd of a show. So I hope you enjoy it. But if not, eh, not a surprise. Big thank you as always to you for sending in a bunch of great stuff. And a massive thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com who are with us again going into a new year and a new season. Before I get to everything I just mentioned, I have to share what might be the best thing I've heard not just this year, but in a while. And it is IndyCar related, and I'm just still trying to prevent myself from laughing hysterically for a couple of hours, even though this was told to me many hours ago. I'm still chuckling over it. So finished the third and final portion of the show and tell the storytelling episode 1000 celebrations. And my final interview for that was our good pal, a uh, visitor to the show and just podcast in general, Willie T. Ribs, many, many times. And so we finished recording, and I, well, actually, I do know how we got onto the topic of Roger Penske. We we're talking about the race for equality and change a little bit. And he, out of nowhere, mentions Roger Penske is an amazing dancer, to which I said, What? He said, Yeah, you had to see it. It's 1990. Roger's then sponsor, Marlboro, was having some form of end of year celebration, might have been New Year's Eve in New York. Willie T was invited, as was his cousin Donnie, football player. And he said, There's no way in hell I would ever get on the dance floor with RP. And I said, What are you talking about? He said, Well, he would easily outdance my ass he says that i i'd lose in an instant so I, i'm not even going to try it wouldn't that be the most embarrassing thing ever and i said well yes it would but i'm still trying to process the fact that you're telling me you observed roger penske 
just absolutely lighting up the dance floor. And I said, so what was he doing? Was he break dancing, spinning on his head? That was a joke that I said to Willie T-Ribs, thinking that it was going to lead to big laughter. And how silly and arcane is that? To which he said, ah, wasn't exactly break dancing, but he was doing the moonwalk. <laughs> I said, what? What are you talking about? He says, look, I was sitting there watching the man, and he only got about three or four steps backwards doing the made famous by Michael Jackson moonwalk. But he said, yes, it was one of the damnedest things I've ever seen. I would never pit myself against Roger Penske on the dance floor. And I have seen with my own eyes, Roger Penske moonwalking. Top that. How does the year get any better? How does any story top that? So, he, we're going to capture that for something. Uh, and, of course, he tells me this after we're done recording as a throwaway line when I'm not even in the office anymore and don't have anything to record it with. Roger Penske, moonwalking. Oh, I just had to share that with you. So if and when any of you get a chance to interact with Roger, whether it's in person, online, if there's some Zoom meeting, whatever it is, I am charging you i am tasking you dear listeners with submitting questions to roger penske to tell stories about breakdancing moonwalking and how on earth he has indeed come to be known as the man who owns the indianapolis motor speedway and the indycar series and who might be the best dancer of all at what 80 three years old, it, I'm still, I'm absolutely blown in the good old mind thanks to Willie T and that story. So let's get rolling with the show, starting off with super producer Thim, a.k.a. Tim Durham, from Off Track with Hinch and Rossi, firing in a short and curse-laden acceptance speech, and then we're going to get into your made-up awards. The final ones after the bell but I love many of them and appreciate the fact that uh, some of you really did try and some of you really did send in a lot of words. But hey, off we go. Hey, Marshall. Producer Thim here. I hear Alexander Rossi and James Hinchcliffe won some award and you would like me to accept on behalf of our podcast Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. And frankly... Uh, those two have been riding my coattails long enough. It's about time I got the recognition for their success. Uh, I taught them both, uh, except for the stuff that they're bad at. Um, didn't teach Alex anything about this season. And uh, I guess in closing, I just want to say, heart, I'm delightful. I accept this award with no humility and no grace. Thanks once again, Tim. I have a feeling that's going to be your first and last award. I uh, also want to say a thank you to Samuel Smith uh, and the celebrated oatmeal stout that I am consuming for this episode. Uh, is probably not going to be enough to get me drunk, but I'm going to be happy. Uh, we're going to move into your final made-up awards of 2020. Mark Fleetwood says, The Vito Corleone, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse award. Goes to Michael Andretti for dropping a footerless variable annuity contract in 
Zach Veach's bed sheets. Wow. Uh, all right there, Mark. Wow. Uh, it says the highest level of open wheel racing by the people for the, of the people, by the people and for the people shall not perish from North America ward goes to Roger Penske. And although I just mentioned, I just started drinking this beer. Maybe I'm already drunk. Uh, let me take a sip here. Mitch Mortensen. How you doing, Mitch? Uh, thanks for sending this in. He says the, uh, Brown pants award goes to Pato award and Takuma Sato nearly coming together at the first gateway race. Yeah, they're there. Yeah. I think that there was a vacuum cleaner involved in, uh, getting the, the seat prepared for round two, uh, for both cars. Adrian Thompson says the Andy Kaufman wrestling heel award with the obvious winner being young Mr. Ferrucci as the only nomination and winner. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he puts it on good and he does kind of sort of get the fact that, uh, the heel role, you know, he's not going to win the, the cutes award. So why not be the heel? If you can't be the baby face, uh, let's see, Matt Dunn, you sent in a submission that is uh, approximate, no joke, approximately 25% of all the words submitted for this episode. So, uh, yeah, what are we, yeah, we burned up almost a half page there, buddy. So let me see if I can condense this. It says, hate to be a downer, but I still cannot think of a good winner for the Andy Grenatelli Memorial Loudest Sponsor Livery Crew Driver Owner Get Up Award. Andy was the master as owner and sponsor with the STP pit crew pajamas. Says Danica's GoDaddy effort was okay, but pr- provocative deep. Jesus, I'm not even going to edit it out. That's why I call it my po- unpolished turd. Danica's GoDaddy effort was okay, but provocative TV spots was kind of cheating. And yeah, I can't really argue with you there. Uh, let's see. Talking about which looked best at the loudest, most memorable sponsor mentioning the uh, Force India slash Force Stroll BWT Pink Racing uh, Point Mercs. Uh, what else? Uh, you uh, Okay, just trying to read through and condense here a little bit there. Um, uh, he says, the more tasteless, the better. Um, and you don't have to get de- uh, degrading. Uh, to any group to do this unless creating a butterball turkey car that is painted up as a finely brown turkey is going to be offensive to turkeys. In that case, perhaps the butterball pardon turkey painted in full plumage on the car with the head, beak, and beard painted on the driver's helmet. Uh, Let's all put on our thinking caps in ways that Roger and company can get the cars on the national news for free coverage for the smartest sponsors. Um, you know, and then you also mentioned our pal, the show, uh, that being Sebastian Bourdais, why, why Sebastian has not got full sponsorship wearing a suit and helmet sponsored by McDonald's and painted up as a single golden, delicious French fry. Um, he also mentioned Andy is spinning in his grave at all the, uh, dignified sponsorship. It doesn't have to get X-rated or sick. Uh, people just need to start thinking a little more out of the box. Well, I hear you, Matt. And, you know, this is one of those awesome fan things where everything you wrote is correct. There's no disagreement with anything. Just got to remember that, you know, these companies have style guides and, and all kinds of things that they need to conform to. So uh, in most cases, they're not really going to just say, hey, we're going to disregard corporate identity and everything and just go totally wacky but to your point which i love 
It's the rare ones, the select ones who do that, who stand out. Like you mentioned, STP for sure, and some of the GoDaddy stuff. And there's been a couple things here there uh, where you got to go, hey, good on you for not even think, not even starting with the box. Just we don't acknowledge a box exists. Everything we do is well indeed out of that general realm. You know, this isn't, and I'm going to keep this uh, a kid-friendly show, I worked for one of the racing teams that I worked for in my early days. Uh, We had a driver. I am possibly forgetting his last name. I'm thinking it was Aaron Rodriguez, but I could be wrong. And he was sponsored, this would have been in the late 1980s, by a phone sex line. Now, for those of you who are younger, and thankfully you didn't have to witness much of this nonsense on television, um, there used to be this thing where either they would charge many dollars per minute to your phone bill or credit card or otherwise, but there was a thing for however many years where you could call some sort of phone number, one nine hundred, uh one nine seven six, and then some sort of innuent sexual innuendo as the letters or whatever that you would call. And there would be, I would believe, men and women, predominantly women, though, uh, for what we're talking about here, um, that would talk dirty to you and whatnot, and it's quadruple cringy, but it was a thing, right? I mean, that's reality. So, Aaron, I don't remember. Uh, well, actually, I do remember. Um I do remember the letters that the numbers on the keypad were uh, spelled out, and it was 1976, and I'll just leave the rest. But uh, it it wasn't full, you know, kind of porn, dirty words done onto the car, but it was just pushing the boundaries. And so even more fun, this was not like pro racing. This was just local SCCA club racing at Sears Point, Laguna Seca, wherever else, where, you know, there's no, like, big formal sanctioning body and race stewards and directors and pit lane control and tech and all that kind of stuff where it was one big unified body that applied its sensibilities to everything. You know, it's a little more mom-and-pop-ish, which means you put a pretty good stress test on that system and you find out pretty quickly who is paying attention and who isn't. And, uh, again, maybe I'll tell this some other time when I'm properly drunk, but there was airbrush done to Aaron's car is a beautiful swift DB one formula Ford and his sponsor one nine seven six. Uh, it started with a letter C and I'll just leave the rest from there. Um, not only were the letters spelling out the number of the sponsor, uh, very provocative, like really, truly for the kind of mom and pop SCCA club racing scene. Yeah, the, this wouldn't be something that you would want your children to be walking through the paddock and say, mom or dad, what is that? And what does that mean? Um, to close the story here, and this is just on the, well, we're talking about loud and getting recognized Uh, Aaron had paid whomever to airbrush a tongue 
uh, on the car in multiple places where it had the one nine hundred C dot 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 dot, um, and on that tongue there were some other things airbrushed, and I'm just gonna leave it there. But this is a real thing on the freaking club local club racing Formula Ford level. Uh, so no one's going to see this that is really going to make one nine seven six or whatever it was, this phone sex line, tons of money. So that's the part to really, that if you want to understand personalities and with this in particular, there was no money to be made by marketing this on a formula Ford, uh, local regional stuff. It was more, you know, I just kind of want to do it to be a dick and have some fun and see how far I could push things. And eventually it didn't take long. Eventually, uh, he was told, what was it? You had to tape over the tongue and the item, the contents on the tongue. And I don't recall if they also said he needed to tape over some of the letters, um, as well. But yeah, it didn't last very long and he got mad and didn't do a whole lot of racing after that. I think he did what we'd call today Indie Pro 2000 and maybe a little bit of something else, but it was just a full, what, (laughs) what, what do you mean? Uh, on the local amateur racing level. And it was funny when I was young and juvenile, it's still funny now, but just in a brash oh my god what were you thinking and how did you actually think that they were going to let that stay in the car very long so yeah didn't quite make it to indycar with that one matt uh nor do i think it would ever actually reach the paddock uh let's see Stephen kills donk we're going to get into the call it the normal part of the show thanks again to all of you who helped with the award show uh steven kills donk says hey marshall i love uh geez i hope well, thanks for saying you love me, even though I'm making that up. Hey, Marshall, I hope that you and Shabrell had a happy holiday season. We did, Stephen. We really did. Uh, it says, do you have any good stories involving John Paul Jr. or involving Aldo Andretti which you could share with us? It says, uh, the next time you record with Chris Neifel, please ask him about Michigan 1983 and being interviewed by NBC while the rescue crews extricated him from his Primus chassis. Uh, I will. Uh, the knife and I are due to record some more stuff here soon. Um, I don't about Aldo. Uh, just someone other than saying hello, honestly, I uh, really did not know him uh, well at all. I cannot claim to have known John Paul Jr. exceedingly well as well. But I do have very fond memories, and he and I did exchange, you know, pleasantries and chit-chat a little bit from time to time. Back when I was working, uh, still working in IndyCar, I might have mentioned on this show, I don't know where, um, I think once, maybe twice, we were uh, positioned next to each other during uh, the month of May. I know for sure, I believe in 1998, with our TKM Genoa team, his, uh, his team was positioned next to ours. And I just recall seeing him out front quite often and not necessarily busy times, right? When practice is going on and, and whatnot, but just more of morning 
before you know tracks gone green and really the the garage has been open to folks with uh the bronze badges and whatnot we're just you know more quiet confined indycar people only time just remember walking out of our garages and seeing him there and at night you know after the day's over and we're fixing whatever prepping whatever doing whatever it's always usually you know hour or two of work at least and he'd be there and i just really really appreciated that uh was and i'm forgetting the exact time might have been 97 with the paul diatlovich team i think 98 what he was with pelfrey 99 i'm forgetting a little bit but there were a couple of years where it just became kind of a fun and enjoyable little routine to see him uh, seemingly every day kind of you know hi there you know hi bob bye bob um morning and night and there was just a there was a piece about him Stephen, that i i really appreciated in the whatever amount of times that we got to speak keep in mind i wasn't a reporter or any of that stuff i mean i'm you know working crew member of a, a racing team and so there was no like interview. Hi, John. So could you tell me about that? It, never anything like that, but just kind of, you know, racer to racer. It's just really enjoyable to catch up with him about whatever little thing, brief interaction, 15 seconds, 30 seconds. And there was just a piece that I received from him. And it was really, really comforting because his reputation, this is maybe something that, hasn't transferred well over the decades but today hearing that someone has a marijuana related offense i think many people especially those who are younger than i probably brush it off or think very little of it big deal it's become decriminalized in so many areas it's it's just a non thing Uh, even in the late 90s still very much a thing and that was the attachment that was the the record that was seemingly following him everywhere and so it's just it's folks like that where those in the sport knew look he was done a raw deal by the courts by his dad by many people this is not a bad person cruel person nothing truly negative to say about the man and yet his life has been very much altered possibly thrown into almost a permanent shadow at that point in time where those things did indeed detract from him and he was seen by too many as someone to not employ to you know just always uh you don't want to be associated with something like that he's a good guy but you can't have that follow you your sponsors won't be down with it and so knowing that it was just really again i I would say comforting steven just seeing him in a place uh, whether it's sitting with his teams or just standing outside by himself right not no fans no autographs any of that but just looking at peace i can't tell you if he was because i wasn't him but there was that outward appearance and i took a lot of comfort in that so you know then you know his indy cartel in terms of quality seats you know 
not a lot to offer in that regard. Uh, it was the, the offer to do the endurance races for Corvette racing in 99 that really jumped out as the big, not a we forgive you. Again, I, I know that I'm rolling in a lot of stuff in some small gestures, but that was received at the time as a, okay, we, we I get, hey, if General Frickin' Motors has said, we want you to be part of our team, even though we're talking sports cars, um, that, I think, helped a lot of people to extinguish whatever hesitance they had or whatever negative views they might have held about the man. So, just hate. Hate that the last... 15 plus years of his life have been involving a fight. Um, yeah, just, yeah. There are most people who die most going to have those who say positive things and they're going to be detractors for sure. It would be strange to live a life with all one response in either direction. Um, all the kind of drug baggage aside related to his father. The thing that makes me sad here and about some more of, uh, those we've lost recently, although included, <sighs> tell me about the folks popping up with, Oh, he was the biggest jerk. Oh, he just only thought about himself. Oh, it, you know, it's that stuff that you hate, right? Steven, that boy, this person was such a quality contributor to us on the planet, Aldo as well, uh, with his sons, just his own spirit. <sighs> yeah, just been heavy, right? There are those of us who feel this stuff deeply and those who don't. And at times I'm slightly jealous of those who don't, uh, but I don't know how to be. And I know many of you don't know how to be anything other than just kind of wide open and feeling it. Uh, let's see. We're going to Brian Burrell. It says, just finished Racer, the John Andretti book, with tears in my eyes. Great read for race fans with a portion of the money going to race for Riley, which John supported so massively. It says he talked about the Stinger project that used the funds to support St. Jude. Unfortunately, they didn't collect all the living Indy 500 drivers, as he indicated. Um, one of them was flat out refusing to sign the car. And this was, I think, I forget exactly what year, but the previous generation, Delara chassis, um, done up with a special paint scheme and was trying to get everyone to sign it, all the living 500 drivers, to auction it off again to benefit St. Jude, race for Riley and whatnot. Uh, Brian asked, curious if you have any backstory. This hashtag me personally would have thought his Uncle Mario and Godfather AJ could have gotten anyone to sign it. Well... Uh, one of the two gentlemen you just mentioned there, not Mario, uh, can be one of the tougher folks to get to sign things. Sometimes, uh, there are some who just aren't really that interested in it. And for whatever reasons, I guess it's hard to argue. I know Mario, huh. uh, what year was this? 87, maybe. I don't remember. 87 or 88, uh, Phoenix IndyCar race weekend. 
I was there as a young, young, young crew member on a SCCA Pro Super V team junior open wheel where I got my start. And so uh, with a pit pass, even though I was 16, so that shouldn't have happened, but hey, thanks, Cart, for not checking too deeply. Um, with a pit pass, uh, I forget what I'd had. I'd somehow recently gotten the most recent auto course book, the amazing Formula One annual that also at the end had a slightly smaller, or very small, I should say, slim, uh, what, cart IndyCar season preview and a couple other things. So just this these books that I lived for and put my little amount of money that I made into buying them when they came out, well, had mustered up the money to buy whatever the most recent one happened to be. And knowing that we were going to Phoenix, which I think was the season opener in 90, or in, sorry, in 88, was like, oh, well, there are going to be drivers there. So, uh, yeah, I know that I'm, I'm the gopher here on the Super V team, but we're generally paddocked right across the road. The little, I mean, I'm 20 feet away from the Vince Granatelli transporter, which is right across from ours. Ours was just a little tag-along trailer and easy up uh, awning, but... I'm just sitting there looking at all the IndyCar teams across us. Not, you know, normally with Super V, you'd be off way somewhere else. Uh, this was like, huh, they're right here. This is going to be easy. Well, uh, didn't get to see Mario uh, other than on pit lane. And so I remember stalking him uh, and really trying, really, really trying, Brian, to get his signature. And I think he was talking with his race engineer at the time, um, Tony Sakali, I believe it was. And so I stood, I think it was end of the day, IndyCars were the final practice session. It was probably a Friday or something like that. And so no more on-track activity. Everyone's packing up and bringing everything back to the uh, transporter and whatever. And so beautiful sun kind of coming down, yada, yada, yada. I'm standing there. Here's Mario Andretti. Funnily enough, he's become a friend later in life, but here's Mario. So I'm standing behind the rear wing. He's standing at the front of the car, maybe his foot kind of up on the nose a little bit, talking to Sakali. And I can't tell you how much time it took, but I stood back there with a Sharpie and my autocorse annual to have him sign the little cart portion in the back. It felt like nine years. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And he looked over and saw me and went back to his conversation. And it seems like it went on for another five or ten minutes. And he looked over and saw me and went back to his conversation. And it went on for, again, I don't know how long, but uh, they must have been debriefing, but it went on forever. And it genuinely felt... And I've never asked him about it. I've never had the balls. And he wouldn't remember because it's so meaningless. But it was pretty clear, Brian, that the thing that would have made Mario the happiest would have been if I just disappeared and went away and just poof, was gone. Because it was clear that for whatever reason, I was a distraction or I don't know what. But uh, I was absolutely determined to get his autograph. And so I think after standing back there, just me, no one else, no, again, it's like the three of us are left on pit lane. Um, probably 30 minutes of just standing there. Uh, I guess I outweighed him or out something to him 
because while looking at Tony, without even acknowledging me, he kind of raised his right hand and kind of used his uh, index and middle finger to kind of do the little flick, like, come here. And so walked over. He extended his right hand, which kind of went to the side of, of Tony. So I'm standing at the right front tire while he is staring Tony straight in the face and never breaking eye contact, never stopping the conversation. He kind of, however he did, motioned for me to hold the book out, hand him the Sharpie. He signed it without really looking, handed me the Sharpie back, and that was it. So for many years, I thought he was the biggest jerk ever because he knew I was there. He didn't particularly care I was there. I'm just telling you what it felt like. Seemed like he'd given me many signals to go away. It's not happening. And finally, after a silly amount of time, he gave in while never looking at me or acknowledging anything. And it was as if uh, this brief interaction with one of my all-time heroes left me so soured and saddened. So sharing all this, I can just tell you that there are some who don't like signing autographs. There are some who want you to understand, rightfully so, that they're working, which is what I would put the whole interaction of mine with Mario when I was, however, in my teens at Phoenix down to, hey, I'm trying to work here. Please respect the space and time. Me being young enough and new enough to the sport I didn't grasp any of that, so I held a bit of a grudge for however long until I realized, like, oh, that was actually pretty uncool. I should have been out of, you know, I shouldn't have been in his periphery intentionally there trying to get his attention. Uh, I should have just been cool and waited out of uh, out of the way uh, to let him finish his work. But you get some of that. Um, I'll just throw this out here as well, and it's not exactly autograph-related, but it was just one of those things. So Robbie Buell, for the longest time, uh, he's had his Racing for Kids charity, right, for 30 years, <laughs> maybe a little bit longer. And so it became a bit of a paddock thing, right? Uh, this was obviously Robbie's deal, but whether it was his Barber Sob program moving into Indy Lights and then into IndyCar, uh, there's always a Racing for Kids type charity angle to what he was doing. There was the copper and brass sales, which was one of his sponsors, and you could buy stuff, and I believe a percentage of that went to the Racing for Kids thing. It's all about trying to bring uh, upliftment and positivity and, and whatnot to kids in the hospital, and I'm probably forgetting other aspects of it all these years later, but the, the overriding thing here, Brian, is that here's Robbie Buell, race car driver, Indy car driver, at this stage by, I think, 95 or 96, where I'm remembering this interaction. And I'm not saying that every single team, you know, many of them, his competitors, obviously, agreed to put the Racing for Kids stickers on their cars. But it was it just felt like kind of a paddock-wide accepted thing. And down, especially in Indy Lights, right, where he came from, champion and whatnot, um, that's his deal, just like a Snap-on Tools sticker 
or a whatever racing fuel sticker, you know, kind of the contingency type things you got to put on the car. That's really where this fell into. And it wasn't official. You didn't have to, but everybody did. And I remember our team, our general racing Indy lights team with Thomas Knapp um, at the helm, just flat out refused. And (laughs) again, I don't know if there's a direct parallel here, but it feels like a little bit where just no. And I remember, I think Robbie came through the paddock wherever we were for the first race of, of 95 or 96. And Robbie came through the Indy lights paddock again. Hey, ex champ and Hey pal. And you know, just friend of everybody. And he turns up to our transporter and I guess we're out by the car or whatever. And Tom was there who he knew used to race against and all that stuff. And, uh, Tom just said, no. And Robbie, all the blood drained out of his face because I don't really think that had happened before. Uh, and even if maybe the racing for kids didn't go on stickers, didn't go in the car, it'd go in a toolbox or a, you know, uh, timing stand, whatever, something charity kids, good things. Frickin Tom just shut them down for uh, reasons he didn't even explain to us. I remember. And so Robbie was just kind of fumbling and, but, but, but uh, uh, this is a, and he just repeated the obvious. This is a, a charity for kids. And Tom was like, yeah, I know. But I mean, why, what, how, and could almost could not compose a full sentence trying to grasp what had happened. And good old, uh, uncle Tom did not give a fart and wasn't particularly compelled to explain why. And I think, I think took delight in leaving Robbie somewhat dumbfounded and, and struggling to compose words over what made no sense for refusing to take part in this very good thing. And when we tried to get out of it out of him afterwards, it was just this, eh, wasn't really in the mood. The, the kicker to it all, our car in 95 and the two cars we ran in 96 weren't exactly flooded with stickers. So it's not like, oh man, I would, but we don't have any space. It was like, yeah, I'd probably come up with about 74 spots. We could put this and I would have been the guy putting him on the car. Uh, but indeed he just, no. So I don't have a, a, you know, a formal answer as to why on the stinger project. I don't know, but I can just tell you, Brian, uh, I have seen all manner of reactions. Uh, I have been having in a very Tony Sicali and Mario Andretti type arena type conversation, uh, a chat with Dario Franchitti. This is when he was an active race car driver uh, out by the transporter, you know, maybe 10 feet away from fans and such. And uh, fans kind of calling out while we're in the middle of a conversation, trying to get his attention to come over. Hey, Dario, hey, would you take a photo with my kid? Or would you sign this thing? And I've seen more than once where he would be, I wouldn't say rude, but forthright was saying excuse me can you see that i'm having a conversation and the person would be kind of like oh 
Yes, I apologize. Well, thank you. Soon as I'm done, I'll happily come over there. But I believe you can see that I was in the midst of a conversation. And it was just, again, this kind of, I, I don't even remember what we were talking about. It happened more than once. Uh, so I think that was a bit of a thing. Uh, but very much of a, if you see me engaged with someone else, please don't just try and break that engagement communication for your need. Please have the respect to wait until I'm done. So, and then you've got folks who will let you interrupt them at any point in time. And I'm not saying they don't care. I don't know, but uh, they will stop and sign and do whatever they can at any point in time. You'll get Sebastian Bourdais at one of our live, I think it was Portland, uh, live podcasts on the Cooper Tires stage. Here's a freaking four-time champ car champion, right? A winner at Portland, what, a couple times during his heyday. And he's joining in on the show. I think he had to do a little bit of a flyby. He couldn't stay for very long. So what does he do once he's done, knowing that he did have a little bit of a hard exit that he had to do? They say, hey, thanks, everyone, uh, and then dive out, go out the back door. No, he walked down the uh, the ramp from the stage, and uh, we had a pretty good crowd for that one, I think, maybe 100, 150 people. And he didn't kind of go out to the fringe, the edge of the crowd, and sign a couple of T-shirts or hats or whatever and leave. He went straight in the middle and was like handing out stickers and buttons and whatever else and signing whatever and, and posing for photos. So, again, a guy who, you know, and this is while he was driving for coin at the time. So, anyways, one of the bigger stars of the series. No, I mean, if there was a mosh pit, he would have been right in the middle of it. So, I can't tell you why, Brian. I can only tell you that maybe there were a couple tales there that were amusing or sad, um, but... It's far from linear, my friend. Uh, Gary Chin. Hey, MP. I like your new logo for the weekend IndyCar. He says, I have a mug that's a painting of the number 41 Porsche IndyCar driven by John Andretti. Do you have any recollection about the Porsche IndyCar program? Also says, Happy New Year's to you and your wife. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, love that car. That March 90P Porsche. And I have our pal Roger Work working on at least two other... Uh, Weekend IndyCar logos plus two. None of you have seen the first of the new Weekend Sports Cars logos, but um, uh, Roger's doing three there as well. And I might do more. So uh, who knows? We'll keep an eye on that, maybe? By we? I don't know. Me? You? I don't know. So memories of the Porsche program. Yes, I have many. Uh, having witnessed its debut at Laguna Seca in 1987, uh, also seeing it at many rounds, part of the support series for super V, uh, or we were the support series quite often with super V in 88 moving to the 88 March. And wow, that was not a good chassis. The 89 chassis, the one and only win for uh, that program, uh, did a little video feature about that on the, did you guys know I have a YouTube account? <laughs> I, I never mention it and make no effort to try and drive uh, subscribers. I should probably try and fix that. Um, anyways, there's a fun little, I don't want to call it documentary because it's only 20 minutes long or whatever. But um, 
anyway, so you might uh, might check that out if I were to do a better job of reminding folks that I have stuff like that. Uh, talking about that lone win in 1989 at Mid-Ohio. Um, lots of recollections about the program. Uh, two things that stand out. One that is hashtag me personally, that's personal, and one that is just general. And of the many reasons that I love that 1990 Porsche, at least in its original iteration, uh, they tried to do something very different by moving weight forward and placing the turbo in front of the motor high up. Um, and that's why if you look at the logo, if you aren't familiar with the car itself, uh, from whatever photos over the years, if you look at the new weekend IndyCar logo with the beautiful rendering of the car that Roger came up with, you will notice that the turbo is at the leading edge, the front of the engine cover. And they, I don't know if it was, uh, titanium or Inconel or what, but they bolted a metal heat guard onto the engine cover to try and manage the flame coming out from the exhaust. And so it just looked great. It looked crazy. It was totally different than everything else in the field. It wasn't a great success for reasons that you've hopefully learned about with the podcast or podcasts that I've done with the chassis designer, Tino Belli, also known as IndyCar's director of aerodynamic development, who occasionally... Uh, demonstrating very poor taste, listens to the show. If so, hello, Tino. Happy New Year to you. Uh, The car was not a great success in 1990, unfortunately, through no fault of Tino. uh, Some regulatory nonsense that pegged their ears back, but uh, he told us all about that in a special edition podcast. So if you haven't listened to that, I would recommend it because he's awesome, and it's some pretty, like, wow, really, that happened? Uh, Type tales. So visit marshallproofpodcast.com, go up to the little search function and type in Tino or Belly or Porsche 90P or John Andretti, and uh, you'll probably find a couple of goodies there. So love that aspect about it, uh, but it just was not successful, unfortunately, with that alternate turbo placement, Gary. Uh, The last thing that comes to mind is I almost, almost... Uh, went to work for the team in 1990, uh, had a job offering, um, $30,000. Now this was mid season. So, uh, whatever that amount prorated about for the rest of the year would have been, um, to be a second mechanic on one of the spare cars. So, call it 15 grand, you know, midsummer, whenever it was, uh, when this came along, a friend of mine, Ricardo, Pan- well, Ricardo Panero, who was our crew chief at Fife Ridge racing where I was working in 1990. He was good friends with, I don't remember who, who was in a senior managerial position with the, uh, the Porsche IndyCar team. And, uh, had basically, he knew that I had an interest in working in IndyCar I wouldn't say I was particularly ready at that point. So my appetite was a little bit bigger than my aptitude, but he came back and said, Hey, uh, if you want a job, uh, we can go get you one right now. I just spoke to my buddy over there and, uh, 30 grand for the year. Uh, so whatever that means now at this point in time of the year, and you'd be the number two mechanic, 
on one of the spare cars. And there's, first of all, I, other than being a piece of dog poo on one of the 18 wheelers tires, I don't know if there's a lower position. So that would have been really funny. Um, and I don't know. Uh, I, I would have loved it. I'm sure, but truly like there's nothing lower than the number two back then than a number two mechanic on a spare car. Anyways, um, I didn't take the job and I'm thankful that I did not, I guess, because besides, well, I would have gotten to work with Derek Walker, which would have been kind of fun. And I love me some Derek Walker. Um, Chip Robinson was involved and I always admired him from his, uh, IMSA driving days. Um, but as we know, that program had what, two, three months, four months left to go before it was shut down for good. And so I would have been leaving my job, leaving the Bay area to go do this thing as the lowest monkey on the totem pole and then probably turning right back around, having moved myself across the country to then come right back. So, yeah. Um, but I do recall being over there talking with, whom, again, I apologize, whomever it was on the team side, uh, with Ricardo there as well, and I brought my camera, and whenever we were done talking, uh, I snapped some photos, some engine change going on, and some other stuff, and I've you might have seen me post some of those photos since then, uh, 31 years later. So, yeah, from that potential, I might, maybe, who knows, should I go to work there? Uh, well, that didn't happen. I do have memories of it, and I have photos from it, from that little encounter. So, that was pretty cool. Uh, but, yeah, it would be seven years more, uh, and a lot of... USF 2000, Formula Atlantic, uh, and Indy Lighting before uh, getting my move up to IndyCar in 97 in the good old Indy Racing League. And then a couple years after that, doing some kart IndyCar stuff. And uh, what, another couple years? And then I said, you know what? I've done this for half my life, and now I need to consider trying something else in life. And within a short amount of time, met the amazing... Chabrel, soon to be Pruitt, and then here we have this new life of mine, and you want to talk about a monkey, well, uh, instead of being the number two on a spare chassis, uh, I don't know, maybe what am I, the number two on a keyboard, so here we are, uh, Ed Joris, how you doing Ed, so I know we're all hoping uh, version two of the 2021 schedule uh, will be the final version, it says, well, I'm fairly confident St. Pete, Texas will happen, uh, because Florida and Texas, not sure about Barber, will Honda want its name on a potential spreader event? And are we only going to have races in states uh, who have their vaccination acts together? Um, it's an interesting one about Honda and Barber. Uh, I mean, I don't. First of all, who knows if it would be a super spreader event, Barber. We have no idea what they would or would not limit for crowd size, what social distancing and mask requirements would be in place, if fans would be allowed. Again, I don't know. We don't know. Um, and that said, that even if they told us today, here's everything that will happen, 
Does anyone believe that a couple of months from now there will be zero changes to that? I don't, at least, and I'm not one prone to negativity and conspiracy theories, but I do think that there is a possibility of enough change, either positive or negative, that whatever is the case today might not be the case not too long down the road. So, uh, yeah, I don't really foresee the Honda angle saying, well, we're going to take our name off of it. Um, So there's that. I do know that there are conversations, which I've mentioned before on the show, that there are plan B's and plan C's in place, uh, I believe by every track. And I might suggest that the first wave of races would probably be most subject to date changes. I spoke with someone today, said, hey, I you know, keep reading from a number of folks or have conversations with folks or inbound texts or whatever from folks in the industry that say, boy, I'm wondering if we should just push the Indy 500 now, move it to August, and that way at least folks have tons of time to prepare. Uh, I'd heard back that, yeah, that's really um, the folks at IMS and IndyCar not wanting to say, be a leader in that regard of pushing the event uh, this far out. So just say, stay tuned, Ed. Uh, I think there might be some changes on the horizon for sure. Just can't tell you exactly where and when and what. A pal, Matt Philpot. Hey, Matt. And hello, by the way, to the Prue Day, the collective of crazy listeners to this podcast who, uh, I don't know what you want. What do you guys do? Do you go camping together? Do you work on cars together? I realize you're not all in the same place, but what do you do? What is an average Prue Day interaction? Because it goes on without me. I, I Again, I just know. The only thing I know is it happens. Not involved in it. Not invited to it. Probably a good thing. What do you guys do? Do you guys, you know, rescue pets or something? Uh, do you knit things? I don't know. Is there gaming involved? And is it like shooters or is it driving games? Do you guys get up in the morning and do exercises? I don't know. Tell me stories, guys. Matt, you're a member of the Prue Day. And I, I've, although I have no governance over anything, uh, the New Day, by the way, is my favorite WWE tag team. So John Wojnar came up with Prue Day as a take on that, for those who are wondering. Um I've encouraged the Prue Day to welcome new members and seek out new members. Maybe some of you who write into the show each week, I don't know what they do, but they're good people and it sounds like fun and I love them. So uh, who knows? Maybe there's a little sub secret community there. Sounds like a little bit of a Reddit thing, doesn't it? Um, But anyways, uh, hopefully you guys add more people and I don't know if it's just making fun of me. I hope so. I mean, I know I give you a lot of material to work with. But anyways, Matt Philpott, thank you for sending this in and the little narrative here. It says, MP, let's say the Indy 500 comes to a crossroads in May. Run on the normal date with reduced capacity or push back to a later date with a hope of running at full capacity. Which option do you think they take? <sighs> really comes down to finances, Matt. I don't know what the break-even number is. Right. If we have X thousand fans at the Indy 500, that's at least where we 
bring in enough money to pay all the bills, put enough money in place so we can pay the leader circle. And, you know, again, I don't know what that number is, but, and maybe this is blasphemous. Maybe y'all are going to blast me for suggesting this. I don't know. Maybe you won't. I would rather have the Indy 500 moved to a later date if that's required in order to be at full capacity. Uh, I do not want to see a May 30 race where the country is still not in a great way with COVID-19 and we have to do some sort of compromised event. Granted, and I'm overstating the obvious, the reason we're still talking about this is we collectively have done a piss-poor job of taking this thing seriously. So if by chance we collectively, I'm not saying you all, but just all of us that are America were to indeed take this seriously and try and make it go away as best as possible, and, you know, government institutions that are supposed to make uh vaccines happen well oversighted them and directed them so more of them happen and more efficient and stuff if all these things are maybe going to come online and become things and we're better at not causing spreads then maybe in may there's a possibility (sighs) don't hold me to this matt but knowing that we're possibly on the clock for some opening round changes, uh, more of them, <laughs> knowing that the third race on the original schedule, uh, April 18, has already been moved to the end of September, um, knowing that we could have a revised schedule here where some of those early races are butted right up against the month of May, it just leads me to say, well... Uh, it's given yourself more time and that's awesome, but we just don't know if we're going to have our act together as, as people and from the higher institutions that we expect to uh, take care of us are going to get things together and hopefully get a vaccine to lots and lots of people. So this is an option. So uh, I would just say that an Indy 500 without full capacity um, that would suck. And I don't think IMS can really afford to do that. Final little caveat here. And it's certainly, um, it's certainly something to consider, which I would have to assume that our friends at IMS have already game planned a bit. Well, you can put whatever the number is, 350,000 tickets on sale does that mean everybody's going to want to come out? There are a lot of folks, myself included, who until even if you say, yep, May is it, full open, full bore everything, hopefully, you know, if assuming there's no state or local restrictions, even if they were to announce, come on in, come on, come all, let's fill the joint, um, will everybody do that or will folks say yeah i'm still not sure about giant crowds of people uh maybe not all of whom have taken this seriously before they drove or walked to indianapolis on sunday morning 
the 30th. Uh, there might not be a, a full uptake of tickets as well. I don't know. I'm not saying I have inside knowledge that that's a fact, Matt. I'm just saying that there's a question. Is it in this episode or the next part two, maybe from our pal Ryan Terpstra, who asks uh, what the odds are in the first race I will attend this year. And on the surface, I would say, yes, Indy is it. Indy would probably be the first time I go to a motor race. Uh, but what's it going to be like then? Um, is COVID still going to be a thing? And heck, are there still going to be restrictions in movement? Hey, media, yeah, you can come here, but you've got to stay in the media center all day, every day. Uh, there's no reason to go if that's the case. So um, for those of us who can't afford to get sick and or transmit the virus to their loved ones for whatever reason, uh, yeah, I'm just on the clock, and I'm guessing there might be others who are just on the clock going, yep, need to get to a place to where coronavirus and COVID-19 are no longer really things that get discussed much, uh, unless we're kind of talking back in the day retro stuff. So could that mean no races for me this year? Potentially. We'll have to see. And maybe for some others as well. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, a man who lives in Michigan, says, how is this for a Detroit GP plan B MIS Michigan international speedway. Now hear me out before you delete my question and tell Robin what a rotten vegetable I was. It's about an hour from Detroit and the capacity of their grandstands will allow a safe, socially distant crowd. Should that still be necessary? Bonus points if it falls on the same weekend as the NASCAR Cup date that MIS lost in 2021. That's a great point on the last one here, Ryan. So I don't dislike this. Love it. And I love MIS. Uh, It's, yeah, that's a proper facility, by the way. Love that joint. Only major thing that stands out here that might be a little bit of a flaw in the plan uh, that would be one R. Penske who promotes the Detroit race. I don't know if he could become a promoter of the MIS alternate event. Uh, yeah, so that's part of how he makes money too. And I don't know if all of the sponsors and everything that trans- would transfer to an hour away at a different facility where he isn't the promoter or owner of the quote event. Uh, There's also a pretty cool thing that happens here. And again, I guess it could happen um, if they were to try and work out using MIS is where the proceeds from the Belle Isle street race. There's a pretty good chunk of that that goes to the city, the, that the uh, Penske promotions folks, uh, the Detroit Grand Prix promotions folks um, turn back and, and invest into a modernization and upkeep of the island. So again, not saying that anything is impossible, but it's a pretty well-oiled thing they have for Detroit. So I hear you about the socially distanced aspect at MIS. You could certainly do that on a giant oval. Um, but I wonder if they really want to go through all that, air quote, hassle. I need to drink some beer. Rishi Despond. How you doing, Rishi? Happy New Year, happy everything. Um, 
he sent in a question and a photo, which I appreciate because often when folks ask some form of technical question or, hey, why did this car or this team do this on this day with this whatever? And like, uh, I don't know, please send me a photo so I can see what you're talking about. Well, he did that. He's asking about a latter generation of Renards, and that would also apply to Lola and I think Swift and maybe Penske as well. Late 90s car, IndyCar chassis, a little bit of a raised nose, and the super speedway configuration had the front wings angled downward. Um, anhedral wing configuration. Uh, so he says, Aerodynamics question for you to kick off the new year. Why did the cart speedway wings angle downwards, like in the picture? Uh, thank you. It's a beautiful Greg Moore player's uh, Renard Mercedes. So then why was this design not used by the IRL cars or the current DW12? Uh, well, let's see. If we are talking the previous generation, Delara, they did not do a raised nose. Uh, and well, let me see. I'm trying to think. No, I don't believe the G force did as did either. Uh, those, it might be easier to answer the why not by going into the why. So 1990 Tyrrell formula one car was the first, it was designed by the great and late and great Harvey Pothelswaite. Uh, was the first to go to the anhedral front wing arrangement. So, Prior to that, from the bottom of the tub where the driver's butt sits all the way forward to the tip of the nose was more or less flat. It was a straight line, and you could call them low noses if you want, but essentially there was no nothing done. Uh, both this is F1 I'm talking about, but then also in IndyCar as well. It really just wasn't a aerodynamic consideration or breakthrough at that point, and this is something that Harvey done broke through and found that by raising the nose, and then since the nose was sitting high-ish up off the ground by comparison to all the other cars, well, you no longer, you had a void. It just wasn't there where the wings would traditionally mount to the nose. And so he said, well... I'm going to do this kind of uh, curled mustache type routine and we're going to have to mount both wings higher up since the nose is higher up and then taper them down and out. And it was radical. And by raising the nose and creating that space beneath it, they were able to feed air to the underwing, the floor, a flat floor actually, so there wasn't a wing, but was able to feed more air, pack more air under there, created really the first keel design that I can recall, and it was just improved airflow beneath the car, tidied things up immensely, and they were on Pirelli tires that year, which they weren't great uh, in terms of endurance, but man, they were rocket fast over a shorter stint. And all of a sudden, using just a naturally aspirated, non-special uh, Cosworth V8, uh, they were able, John Alacy in particular with that car, Rishi, which you might look up 1990 Tyrrell, um, they were able to run with, on occasion, the almighty McLarens and their Honda V10 powered machines that 
uh, Senna and what 90, that would have been Berger driving. Uh, Ferrari was there, obviously. Uh, Williams was pretty darn good, but this was just a, by comparison, very small and underfunded team that was able to make a huge leap forward, all due to this aerodynamic breakthrough of raising the nose and then doing this really awesome kind of funky treatment with the front wings um, that just took everything forward. Well, surprise, this is something that soon uh, pretty much everyone else was following. So here we are nine years after that car, and while the nose of the Renard uh, 99i Renard cart car is not drastically high off the ground, it is high enough. As I recall, Hrishi, on the reason for the main question here, and again, hopefully you get a little look at the pretty awesome uh, 1990 Tyrrell F1 car. Uh, as I seem to recall, the reason for the downward angling uh, is definitely one of creating more stability, uh, but also, I believe, uh, was air coming off of the uh, edges of the front wing and how that interacted going back towards the floor and uh, reconnecting and heading out the back. So uh, I believe uh, had they just shot straight out on whether it's the Renard or the other cars here, uh, I believe that there would have been a little bit of an issue with the the down downflow effect of things connecting uh, with the little, hopefully, uh, Venturi's running beneath the car and lots of spinny air uh, that is meant to come back together and leave the car in a nice and clean fashion or as much as possible in the speedway uh, configuration. So, yeah, uh, usually with the way you see front wing treatments, something like this with the downward angle, uh, you have to look at that and realize it's not just being done for what it looks like at the front of the car and what might be happening at the front of the car, there's also a, and how does the air coming off of the outer edges of the wing, how does that interact with uh, what's happening with the floor and the diffuser and everything coming back together uh, as it leaves the car? So that's what I seem to recall, my friend. Uh, you have another question here. So there's been speculation about the future of NBCSN. What is the future TV home for IndyCar if Comcast decides to kill NBCSN? Uh, is it the USA network or streaming back to ABC or ESPN as a soccer fan? I've seen NBC move some, uh, European premier league matches to streaming only already. As I recall, there's a multi-year contract with NBC in place. So I don't think there would be any changes there. It'd be a great question to see if I can get someone to answer. And I've been thinking about that, Hrishi. I'll admit that I'm not totally sure who I should ask. Stupid quick little sidebar here. There's some scenarios where you really have to think about who to ask. Because if you ask the wrong person and they are hesitant to answer or straight up decline to answer, depending on where they sit in the food chain and what power they possess... You hear later that, oh, yes, oh, yeah, no, I heard you ask so-and-so about that. And I'll go, really? Yeah, yeah. sent around an email saying, hey, if uh, Pruitt or anyone else calls, uh, either don't take their call or just decline to comment and end of conversation. So, yeah, 
Still trying to stri- do a little bit of strategy there, Rishi, on who I should ask, because I know this is one that could lead to that kind of outcome. Uh, where are we going next? Cody Oakwood, as I think, maybe, we're winding down a little bit. Hey, MP, body kit question for you. Uh, I would assume that aero is the number one factor in designing a body kit for any car. Well, yes. I uh, would just say a body kit, aero kit, was used as terminology when we had manufacturer aero kits. So none of this is a negative towards you, Cody. I'm just sharing. Uh, body kit just isn't really a thing. So when you talk about designing body work for a car or an indie car in this case, it's just designing body work. So just a little bit of nomenclature there for you. Uh, he says, however, how much consideration is really given to designing a uh, to body work that is aesthetically attractive to potential sponsors and the viewers? Well, really, truly depends. If it's a spec series, uh, we've seen at times, maybe with the current car until 2018, not a lot. Um The prettiness side tends to be very much in the last many decades uh, not a huge consideration because performance, Formula One maybe is a, a great example, every team for the most part builds their own cars, designs their own cars. There are some for sure that are prettier than others, but every team that presents their brand new cars that'll be coming up here in 2021 very soon will have come up with a vehicle with bodywork that they believe is the best that they could possibly make in terms of competitiveness. It's downforce to drag ratio. It's maximum drag ratio. It's, I'm sorry, maximum downforce possibilities. It's minimum drag possibilities. Everything that has been done has been done for the sake of beating everyone else. If the car also looks okay while doing it, great. You know, there are some where you got to, I at least look at and go, whew, boy, Ferrari, for example. Uh, I don't know if I'd call many of the current Formula One cars pretty, but of whatever would be considered the prettiest, uh, Ferrari might not have really been winning a lot of aesthetic uh, awards for what they've come up with, but it's really not something they care about. You know, folks will tell you, uh, drivers will tell you, designers, engineers will tell you the prettiest car they've ever seen is the one that they've won with and won with a lot. So where things get a little bit different here, Cody, and this is specific to your question uh, in the weekend Indy car. Well, so you go, wait a minute. So this is a spec series, so you can kind of do anything you want, right? True. The biggest failings of the current chassis, well, there were many failings, but uh, there were big speed objectives named right out front that were all driven by an ability to hit a low, low, low aerodynamic drag number. And boy, if we can hit that number, these things are going to fly. It didn't. It didn't even come close. And then all of a sudden at the speedway, we're talking qualifying boost and we're doing all, we're just right. Um, in the name of looking beautiful, 
you know, I'd love to see the next IndyCar rules give some, call them not mandatory dimensions, but expected dimensions. Staring at the photo that Rishi sent in of this 20-year-old Renard. I mean, it's just gorgeous. They even, you know, apply it to today's standard. And I think most people look at it and go, yeah, that, that's a beautiful car. Um, by the rules at that time and aerodynamic understanding, uh, it was the hot ticket to have. And even though things evolved, Lola's became the cars to have in the 2000s, you know, uh, early-ish 2000s on, you know, the car still didn't look that dissimilar from uh, 98, 99 um, Renard like I'm staring at here. So I would love to see some higher nose expectations and some other things placed into the rules where you go, okay, I'm saying rules. They're creating them. God, what is wrong with me? Um, I'd love to see something that says, hey, do some of that. We know that it's certainly not a bad aerodynamic direction to go. So do some of that. And we do have a little bit of an elevated nose now um, with the DW12, but it's not massive. But there's an ability, I would say here, Cody, that really does stand out for IndyCar to say, okay, we know that we do need to have a pretty darn good drag figures to look at, right? We don't want to overburden the car with excessive um, aerodynamic slowdown stuff, also known as drag. But we know that we can make a fair amount of downforce with the thing, so that's good. We can probably design into uh, this next-generation car something that looks appealing to the eye without betraying all of our performance needs. So that is cool. That is something that gives me hope, Cody, and would say that Boy, I do wish Jay Fry and his management team was here back when uh, the DW12 was being pondered because, granted, uh, Delara was jerked around a lot and given a lot of constraints that were really hard to achieve all at the same time. But we really do have a situation where had they been in place and had jay's general approach to workshopping things um put into motion i think we'd be talking about a dw12 that was beautiful from the outset so um yeah uh pretty straightforward i would say without a doubt uh we have a situation where the next car could be kind of sort of pretty darn pretty and hopefully still achieve everything that it needs to achieve all right, where do we go next? Uh, right turn lever, you ask a bit of a historical a historical question. Why are the Noni car ovals going clockwise, and are there any that could be run turning right with the existing pit geometry? I believe it was a tradition that followed other traditions, such as velodromes and horse racing venues here in the good old United States of America. Uh, so I believe that was a precedent that was already set. Are there any that could be run turning uh, right? Hmm. Something tells me Worldwide Technologies Raceway, a.k.a. Gateway, might work. I don't know if 
Indianapolis would work. I, I assume someone's tried, maybe. I don't know. Uh, that'd be fun. Um, what else? Would Texas work? I don't know if Texas would work. Uh, that, yeah, that might be a crashy, crashy thing. So what are your guys' thoughts? Give me some ideas on some ovals that would work going backwards. All right, we are getting close to saying good night, y'all. Uh, and we're going to do that with our pal, newish pal, Damien Hellwell. How you doing, Damien? This is Marshall. I hope you and your loved ones had a good Christmas, uh, as good a Christmas as possible, given the Corolla situation. We really did. Just actually going to try and extend it into January as long as we can. Uh, it says we're just about to enter a third national lockdown in the UK. IndyCar and motor racing in general was a godsend for me last year. Uh, it was a tough situation as it was. I can't imagine how hard it would have been with nothing to look forward to each weekend. Um, he also adds, which drivers do you think need to make New Year's resolution and uh, what should they be? All right. Uh, let's see. We're going to go first with Connor Daly. Um, his New Year's resolution is to not finish the year without getting a giant Space Force tramp stamp tattoo. That just, it needs to happen. Matching possibly with Ed Carpenter. Could you imagine the two of them full like stepbrother style, uh, just drunkenly wandering down to whatever Indianapolis tattoo parlor, preferably when it's snowing. I don't know why. Um, and getting dueling Space Force. Maybe like on Ed's, it says space and then on Connor, it says force. So like you got to get them together to get the full space force logo. I don't know. Is that an idea? All right. That's, I don't know if that's maybe, is that a resolution or a dictation? I don't know. I'm not sure. Let's see. Uh, Another new year's resolution. You said drivers. I'm going to push this out to owners. I want Dale coin to have no fewer than nine co-entrants on his third Indy 500 entry. Uh, because what we did last year with Rick Ware Racing and Bird and Bellardi and uh, Washer and Dryer and Reinbold and all kinds of other stuff, we put on a stupid little sticker. Thanks again, Roger Warwick. Uh, he can do better. Yeah, he, he can do one where approximately half of the pit lane wall is required for IMS to paint the team name there. Um, Pato Award needs to spend the year refusing to be addressed as anything other than Patricio. Just stop every interview. Um, and just no more Pato. Got to be Patricio. I don't know why, but uh, we, we need to make that happen for sure. Uh, what else? Meyer Shank Racing. Team owner, co-owner, Michael Shank, needs to commit. It's a New Year's resolution. Again, might be more of a dictation by me. A decree. He needs to spend the year drinking real beer because Bush Light and any of that nonsense. I mean, really and truly, that's not beer. I don't know what it is. It's just, it's failure in an, an aluminum enclosure. He needs to join us minimum Samuel Stouts, but let's just say Guinness. 
as kind of the entry level real beer. And then we can work our way up not only in alcohol percent, but just right. I mean, again, I know Bush Light's kind of the, the every person's beer, and that's great, but he's been drinking that for so long. Let's get serious. And he might save money. Granted, I couldn't tell you what a 12 pack of Bush costs, but instead of buying, see, this has always been my thought. One of the many reasons why I enjoy and I'll really only drink beers that I can't see through. At an early age, in college, actually, college age, maybe? I don't know. In my late teens, now I'll say early 20s, I realized I, whenever I was old enough, I could go to a bar and I could order, again, friends and whatever were there. I could order five, six, seven MGDs or bushes or whatever type things. I don't even know what you call those. I don't know what, what grade of beer or what style of beer other than just pissy bad. I could spend, those were like, what, three, four bucks a piece, five, I don't know, whatever they are. I could either spend a buttload of money on many, many bottles of beer that really didn't do the trick, or I'd have to consume so much that A, I'd be pissing all day and all night, but most of all, you know, buying five, six, seven beers to get a little buzz on, to get a little bit of happy, that made no sense when I could buy one or two <laughs> of something that would just kick you right in the crotch. And there was one super low production volume one from, I forget, Austria or some Sammy Schlaus. And, I mean, you could A, barely drink it. It was so powerful, but... You only needed one. There was one time where I remember buying two, and it was just grab the squeegee and just kind of take the puddle that I was of a human and kind of push it outside. Uh, yeah. So maybe that, I would say, Damien, as a bit of a closing New Year's resolution. I know you said drivers, but we're going to, you know, come on. Uh, Shank, throwing down the gauntlet, buddy. Real beer, serious beer. You might even save some money instead of buying case after case of the thing that takes forever to get you there. Just, you know, let's let's try something a little more serious. You only need a couple. You might even save a little bit of money. I think you're going to be happier too. Um, Kyle, H.B. Donnelly, and you're, you're pushing back on what I thought the H.B. might stand for. He says the H.B. unfortunately does not honor the Formula One or, or Jaguar XJR 14 G, uh, Group C uh, motor, nor does it stand for high boost, as my family might attest, but merely some names from each side of the family tree. Um, happy Boy. I think that if it's not high boost and it's not in honor of the Cosworth HB F1 slash Group C motor, uh, we'll just go with Happy Boy. Kyle, Happy Boy Donnelly. That's pretty cool. I wish my, I actually don't wish my middle name was Happy Boy. Um, no questions here. Just an appreciation of Road to Indy, Fat Boy Racing, Indy Pro 2000 team owner, Brandon Pewterbach, who happened to be on, I think, my most recently posted podcast. A little bit of a Road to, road to, road to I, sure. Road to Indy hashtag podcast. Uh, so someone who I didn't have any concept of before, but now I'm a massive fan of. 
there's enough perfection and liking winners and serious six driver debriefs and firing drivers the drop of a hat out there someone needs to have a little fun and also run a small carnival uh, for the paddock to enjoy and that would be brendan peterbach to which he says onward fat boy and the fat boy racing team i agree brendan's just uh oh he is a hoot wrapped in a meat suit there you go that's that's a logo or a sticker uh copyright marshall pruitt uh he's a hoot wrapped in a meat suit brendan peterbach there we go uh all right a couple more here and then we are d-u-n done uh lance snyder says led panels are basic therefore where are the led panels i wonder if i need to go on a hunger strike first of all i could definitely go on a hunger strike just because you know uh it'd be healthier but i wonder if i need to go on a hunger strike to force indycar to introduce led panels even if they're malfunctioning um spot the malfunction might be a pretty fun aspect of some races so i'm with you lance uh one of the great failings of our lifetime indycar no leds uh kevin frederico says hey marshall's roger penske ever looked into bringing porsche back to the table says with his history with porsche motorsports and how the series is desperate for a third manufacturer etc etc um not to mention how close they were with jay fry before they felt the old regime didn't have their act together um says it just shocked me that roger was solely focused on trying to get ferrari in i've had this thought for sure kev that hey boy this this would be a good thing granted those thoughts came to an end when porsche announced that they would be coming to america here in 2023 racing in imsa in their lmdh formula uh their new top prototype class and although it's unannounced and i'll be surprised if any other team is announced i do believe that roger penske and team penske will be running that on behalf of porsche so what does that mean well if porsche is already going to be spending a pretty decent chunk of change on an annual basis to race in america promote its road cars and do that with prototypes also doing that in indycar with a brand new engine formula who knows what the price tag would be but might actually cost a surprising amount that they wouldn't have in their budget or wouldn't want to make possible in their budget that might be a bit of a challenge so i know the logical pushback is but wait uh honda slash acura compete in both indycar and imsa and in the top class prototype there and gm is in indycar and in imsa in the top class with cadillac uh what's the big deal porsche well again uh they're coming back in a couple of years to sports cars having pulled out from factory racing altogether in imsa money is certainly one of the reasons they wanted to get things under a little bit of a different direction here would say most of all though i would be absolutely stunned if porsche were to say yes we're going to do two north american factory racing programs that cost a lot at the same time i just can't foresee that happening so 
there might be some manufacturers, Kev, where you go, yeah, they'd probably do multiple. They probably do, I don't know if we're talking three, but they might do two big series at the same time. That's not Porsche today. Um, even back when they were doing things in the late 80s uh, through 1990, uh, you know, it started off while they were running with Al Holbert uh, in Imson GTP, but, you know, um, that had a sad ending there. So love the idea, brother. Cannot see it happening since they committed to LMDH. Uh, we're going to do three more to close. Uh, Dylan Burgett. Hey, Dylan says, I have a suggestion that I would like to run by you. Tony Kanon's last lap tour didn't exactly work out. Now that he's got a two-year deal to pair up with Jimmy Johnson, hashtag me personally thinks this should be called the Green White Checkers Tour. I like that. Uh, obviously, we don't have those in IndyCar, but since we do have Mr. NASCAR coming over here, I like that, the Green White Checkers Tour. Only thing that Jimmy might push back on, though, and I know you're talking about Tony, but this is also a little bit of a farewell tour for Jimmy as well, but I don't know if he's uh, ready com- to commit to a checkers point in time here, but uh, I will mention that to uh, his camp the next time that I connect. Isn't it cool? I want to be at a, at a place in life where I have a camp. I know we got the Prue Day, but that's kind of a rogue affiliate that, you know, they're not like quite the A-team. You know, together, they'd probably get arrested, and I don't know who for what, but there's something there. Here, this is a camp. This is like people behind him, supporting him, making things happen, and making decisions on his behalf. And right, I kind of want to get there. Maybe the Prue Day could become my camp. <sighs> That's a little weird. It's 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 very weird. Uh, William Matson says, "I've been watching the '94 IndyCar season when Scott Goodyear was with the Budweiser King Racing team. The commentators have mentioned something going wrong at the team several times." Even the Autocourse yearbook for that year mentions trouble, but it doesn't get into specifics. You know exactly what went wrong at King Racing in 1984. Uh, I do recall uh, a couple of very basic things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I do recall that there was a little bit of acrimony, keeping in mind that King Racing was Kenny Bernstein's team, and this was primarily an NHRA, what, wasn't it Top Fuel? Or, or funny car, maybe both. But this was a drag racing team that morphed and added an IndyCar racing element to it uh, on behest of Budweiser. And I do recall that there was a bit of a, a pullback desired on budget, um, knowing that the team was not super achieving. Now, granted... Uh, that budget moved over to the Newman Haas racing team on Paul Tracy's car in 95. But it was, as I seem to recall, there was just a general, you're not getting much out of this. And we aren't exactly sure if we're going to remain committed long-term. And they didn't, ultimately. Uh, now, this is the part that I'm brain farting a little bit. Was it technical director engineer change? I think maybe William There's something in there as well that I recall where it was a little bit of a, Oh yeah, this, this ship is going to be sinking here soon. And I just, I part of me for whatever reason, 25 plus years later, 
just have some sort of little mental bookmark of, I think that there might have been a little bit of an exodus going on. Um, I don't recall from a management standpoint who ran the thing, but I also do recall that there was just a general like being around the team just from the outside, right? I think 94 would have been Atlantics for me and a little bit of lights. Um, there just wasn't much that I recall of like unity and positivity and progress going forward. It was more of a, oh yeah, this this might not be long for the world. So I know those aren't specifics, uh, I will try to dig out some mild magazines here and see if I can find something a little bit more if I don't forget to do that. I'm going to close this episode, part one of the week. We'll have a part two a little bit later in the week. Pal Curtis Cleveland says, Hey, MP, I always struggle to think of questions, but always enjoy listening. Best to you and your wife, and hope to see you at the fall classic. That is the Long Beach Grand Prix. Well, thanks, Curtis. Uh, I always enjoy doing these, so... It's even better when at least one person will admit publicly to enjoying it. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. This is our first little get-together of 2021. Thank you once again to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Seriously, thank you. And our awesome, awesome pals at torontomotorsports.com. We're going to talk to you here in a couple days. And no, I don't think we're going to have a guest this week. Just... Not really in the mood right now. Just more in the mood of talking to y'all than doing Q&A, but probably next week. 